Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at ClearMe.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. On the anniversary month of 9-11, it's probably a good time to reassess airline and airport security. Two decades after September 11th, what lessons have we learned? And most importantly, what lessons have we applied? It's been said so many times that if we don't remember the past, we're doomed to repeat it. And so, we will remember the past on this podcast with Garrett Graff, the author of a remarkable oral history of 9-11, The Only Plane in the Sky. The pivotal decisions that were made that day by leaders and ordinary people, some planned, most coincidental, and all that changed our lives, and theirs, forever. I'll talk with Patrick Smith, author of Cockpit Confidential, for the perspective from the airline cockpit. He's a pilot, of course. To David Pekoski, the current administrator of the TSA. And to Claude Elliott, a name you probably don't recognize, but he's the former mayor of Gander in Newfoundland. And this small Canadian community was also affected by 9-11 in some incredible and unexpected ways and was a bright and shining light of humanity for more than 7,000 airline passengers who were stranded. First up, Garrett Graff. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So here's the question I have to ask everybody. I'm going to ask you, where were you on 9-11? Yeah. Um, I was a junior in college in Boston, and I have an incredibly boring 9-11 story um, of, you know, finding out at breakfast and then watching the day unfold uh, on television. Uh, but part of what makes, uh, uh, part of what I always talk about in the context of my own experience is, you know, this is now a day that one quarter of America is now too young to remember, um, either born after or they were too young uh, 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 as children on 9-11. That's a scary, that's a scary thought. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible sort of turning point as we see the, uh, you know, this uh, apocal event, this sort of hinge between the 20th century and the 21st uh, switch to uh, switch from memory into history. And the history, as I've come to understand it, that we teach people about that day is very straightforward and tidy. It's about the four planes, the first attack at 846, the the whole thing over 102 minutes later with the collapse of the second tower at 1028, the Pentagon, Shanksville, the Twin Towers. But when I think back on my experience, presumably your experience as well, that's not the day any of us who were alive then actually lived. And so my work in this book, in telling the story of 9-11 through an oral history of people as they experienced it, is to try to recapture the sense of chaos and confusion and fear and trauma that permeated that day because it was not a neat and tidy and simple day in the way that we teach the history. It was a day where none of us understood when the attacks began. None of us understood when the attacks were over. For much of the day, we didn't understand how many attacks there had actually been at all. And in fact, worst of all that day was the fear of what came next. You know, we didn't have any sense of what the afternoon of September 11th might hold, what September 12th might hold, what October might hold, what 2002 might bring. And it was that fear, that chaos, that confusion, that trauma that really drove the U.S. government response in all of the world-altering ways that it did. And it was much more than just what happens when you get to an airport and get on a plane. Much more than that. Uh, You know, you mentioned talking to everybody. I should tell everybody, we're talking about 480 voices in this book, uh, archives, I mean, documents, uh, original interviews. I mean, as a comprehensive oral history, this is the book to read because the one thing that you get from this, and I'm not just trying to give you another compliment, but it's true, is it puts it in context. It puts it in, in so many different contexts. And from that, maybe if you're lucky, you can you know d- d- evolve your own perspective of, of your own experience during that time. Yeah, and this was a day where the facts of the day just don't capture the experience of that day. Um, And sort of understanding how to bridge those is an important part of understanding the history that has unfolded since. And of course, as we all attempt to process what happened, 
either in the short term or the long term, that's what this book really does. It processes what happened from so many different vantage points, whether it was George Bush reading a kid's story in a school in Florida to, um, you know, what maybe one of the news anchors was doing at that precise moment at NBC um, and or what a firefighter was doing in Queens that never never was going to go back there again because of the call to the towers. Uh, in doing this book, was there something that you learned that that really surprised you? Well, I think part of what makes that day so fascinating from a historical perspective is the way that there are so many events and stories of that day that had they happened on any other day in modern American history would be among the most dramatic things to have ever happened in modern American history. And yet on that day is not even among the top 10 or 12 biggest stories that we knew coming out of 9-11. And two of them really stand out in my mind, both with sort of a a travel component as it is, Um, the the maritime evacuation of lower Manhattan, that over the course of that morning and afternoon. I I must tell you, I, I must tell you, I saw a documentary about that. I was not aware of it. You're absolutely right. And when I saw that documentary about how many people jumped in their boats and started heading for Lower Manhattan, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a maritime evacuation of a makeshift civilian armada. Um, you know, ferry boats and pleasure yachts and fishing vessels and tugboats um, that was larger than the British evacuation of Dunkirk. I mean, somewhere between three hundred thousand and five hundred thousand people evacuated from Lower Manhattan that day. And then one of the other stories I follow in the book, as you'll remember, is the story of air traffic control that day. Oh my goodness, yes. You have the, uh, you know, that morning unfolding inside the FAA where Ben Sliney, the head of national operations for the FAA that day, is in his first day on the job. And in his first two hours on the job gives two orders no American has ever given before or since. The first instituting the nationwide ground stop after the second attack around 9.03, and then around 9.47, giving the unprecedented order, land everything, land everything now, and and bringing down across the country all 4,500 planes that were in the air at the closest available airport regardless of the plane's destination and regardless of whether the airport was in any way prepared to receive them. I mean, and it's just a a Herculean and incredible heroic effort by the air traffic controllers that morning. They brought down 750 planes in the first 10 minutes after the order was given. Think about that. That's unbelievable. I can't even comprehend how they did it. Yeah. And, you know, most Americans are sort of if if they're aware of that story at all, what what we know is the story of the 38 planes, the transatlantic flights brought down in Gander, Newfoundland. Oh, I know that story so well. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, that formed the backbone of the Broadway musical Come From Away, dropping 7000 passengers into a town of 9000 people for three days with you know, about one hour's notice. I mean, just this incredible effort. 
And yet that same scene played out with varying levels of complexity and drama at basically every airport across the country that day. In fact, um, when Broadway reopens, I hope the play Come From Away comes back. I've seen it three times. I mean, I never see anything three times. I've seen that three times to watch the audience because imagine a play with no major Broadway stars, with no major Broadway uh, theme songs or, or, or score, and at the end of this play, which is based totally on a true story, everybody in the audience is standing on their chairs and screaming and clapping and yelling. It's just quite an amazing story. Talk about unintended consequences, right? Yeah, and, and it's a great reminder, um, you know, as we approach the 20th anniversary now, um, of the shared unity that came together in the days and weeks after the attack. And, and you know, it's hard and it's sad to look back 20 years later at how that national unity and sense of shared sacrifice has been squandered. But, you know, it, the, the musical in many ways is just this incredible reminder of the generosity and love that played out in the course of the shadow of that terrible tragedy. Of course, I have an admission to make. It also reinforced my love of Canadians. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, when you think about that story, and by the way, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show to the former mayor of Gander, who was there at the time. To talk, I mean, they had a bus strike in the middle of this. They, the, uh, the Gander airport on a good day might have had three flights. And all of a sudden you had jumbo jet after jumbo jet after jumbo jet, nose to nose, unable to move, and of course, then come the stories of the relationships that formed in the most unexpected ways. Um, and right now in Gander today, they're having a reunion, and one that's very much overdue, uh, but they, they do keep in touch. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. I lost friends in that building that day. And of course, I'm also a fireman here in New York. My fire department was called out that day. Uh, but by the time they got there, it was more than, it was not a rescue mission. It was basically a cleanup of a very terrible, toxic location. But everybody has a story to tell. Either one, one degree of separation or maybe even three. But we all have it. Do you have one? I think part of my story, um, it, I, I was lucky. Um, I know only sort of friends who lost friends and family in, in that uh, day's tragedy. But I've spent much of the last decade reporting on and studying that day and am sort of now far too grimly uh, acquainted with so many of the stories of loss that day. And for me, uh, what uh, what really came through in the book research that made the day so haunting is the way that luck played such a big factor in that day. That yeah, you you talk about you talk about Monica O'Leary. Uh, yeah, uh, that Monica O'Leary. Um, one of the stories that I opened the book with on Monday, September tenth, she was laid off from Cantor Fitzgerald, the financial services firm atop the North Tower. On Monday, she was the unluckiest person at Cantor Fitzgerald. She goes around, collects her things in a box, says goodbye to her colleagues, and leaves. 
And then the next morning stands on the rooftop of her building in New York and watches as the towers collapse and all of her firm or co-workers are killed. And that story sort of plays out in ways big and small throughout that day where you have people you know, live and die based on when they placed a telephone call, when they went to go get a cigarette, when they ran an errand, when, you know, which plane they caught, which bus they got. Um, and, and, you know, we make these decisions a thousand times a day without ever thinking about the alternate universes that we might be unlocking. Michael LaMonaco, the chef. I know Michael so well. He yeah, has, he has a restaurant now called Porterhouse. Yeah, he survives that day. He's the chef at the restaurant atop the North Tower. Um, and he, that morning of all mornings, stops in the lobby of the World Trade Center to get a new pair of glasses at LensCrafters. And he would have otherwise been in his desk in his kitchen at 8.30 that Tuesday morning. But that morning, stops to get a new pair of glasses and lives while dozens of his colleagues don't. Um, and, and, you know, it's just, it's such a, over the course of the day, you see these like haunting moments where, you know, you want to sort of reach through and say like, you know, don't get on that elevator, you know, don't get on that plane. Um, and and people sort of not realizing the fate that awaits them. Sure. You also speak about that one conference room in the Pentagon. Yeah, there's this one conference room at the Pentagon, an um, Army personnel meeting that's interrupted by the crash of American Airlines Flight 77, which comes in sort of right under it. The building around them erupts in fire uh, and smoke. Everyone who uh, walks, you know, evacuates from that conference room and turns left dies and everyone who turns right lives. And, you know, there's just there was no way that people understood how consequential that minor decision was going to be that morning. And then, of course, there's Flight 93, which crashes in Shanksville. The question is that we've never been able to answer. And I know you have some conjecture on this. Where was it really heading? Yeah, so this is actually um, a fascinating question, um, and it's one that I spent a lot of time this year looking at. I did a podcast series called Long Shadow this year that looked at sort of the lingering questions of 9-11, one of which is the target of United Airlines Flight 93. And the answer, it appears, is actually the capital, um, that there had been a lot of speculation about the difference between the White House and the Capitol. Um, and it, what it turns out is actually the terrorists did not view those two buildings as interchangeable, that um, they saw the White House as a symbol of executive power, but that they actually saw Congress as the building that was responsible for the U.S. policy towards Israel. And so uh, by all accounts, it appears that they were actually headed towards the Capitol that morning. So here we are, 20 years later, on 9-11. What are you thinking about today? I, you know, I, I, it, 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 this has been such an emotional summer for this anniversary to hit between the pandemic and the pictures from Afghanistan. Uh, you know, there, there was never going to be a good time to lose Afghanistan. Um, and, and I don't know anyone seriously who has talked about 
uh, you know, basically any other outcome for the last 15 years in Afghanistan, that we weren't going to end up where we have ended up in some way. Um, but man, you know, it is, it's been really hard this summer watching those images and those stories play out from Afghanistan and sort of thinking back over the last 20 years and what all of the legacy, the dark legacy of the war on terror has turned out to be. My thanks to Garrett. It's been 20 years since 9-11, and remarkably, we haven't had a fatal hijacking or airline terror attack in the U.S. What do the airline pilots think? So I checked in with pilot Patrick Smith. Patrick Smith, how are you, sir? I'm great, Peter. Thanks for having me back. So let's go back 20 years about the cockpit environment, about your life as a pilot, and about how things changed radically, or maybe not, depending on your point of view, after 9-11. Well, I wouldn't say they've changed radically. Um, There have been changes, security protocols, cockpit entry and exit protocols, that sort of thing that I can't really get into for obvious reasons. But as far as life aloft, so to speak, you know, there there haven't been any major changes. I think really the the legacy of 9-11 from an air travel perspective is airport security and all of the associated protocols and, and tedium and hassles that are associated with that. And this is something we've talked about in the past on the show, but I, you know, I'm dismayed that so much of airport security, things that were put in place after 9-11, ostensibly temporarily, are, you know, still with us all these years later for you know no reason that can that can really be justified and and what do i mean by that i i, I don't want to drag this in a disrespectful direction but you know the, the success if we can call it that of the 9-11 attacks you know really had nothing to do with airport security in the first place what weapons what tools the the perpetrators used really didn't matter they could have used anything just something they made on the plane it, it that wasn't the point pardon the uh, the pun or expression. It was all about the element of surprise and taking advantage of our mindset and our presumption of what a hijacking was at the time. That that was how the, the attacks succeeded. It wasn't about box cutters. It was about the element of surprise and, and people assuming how a hijacking was going to go and, and, and all of the kind of protocols that were in place then that basically let it happen. And, you know, all of that was changed immediately. And yet, you know, here we are, 20 years later, and we're still you know, pawing through people's bags, looking for little pointy things and, and wasting immense amounts of, of time and, and manpower on things that don't really make us safer. And we, we, we've, we've all heard the expression security theater. Um, but we just kind of put up with it, which is, is a little dismaying. Um, you know, the fact that these things have lingered this long and there's just no real effort or, or push to to change airport security into something more effective. We're just kind of stuck with it. And I was afraid that was going to happen. And and here we are. You know, I think about how we fight the last war and not prepare for the next one. We remember the case of the shoe bomber. We're still taking our shoes off. Uh, I remember the guy who tried to set his underwear on fire. And thank God it didn't happen. But for, for a couple of days after that, we weren't even allowed to bring anything on the plane other than our clothing. Um... And of course, the the three one one rule to this day about liquids, um, it's uh, sort of somebody you know doing a, a chemical set in a bathroom, and, and mixing a bomb in an airplane lavatory. Uh, you know, we're still doing that. 
the thing that drives me the most nuts, and by the way, all of this, I'm sure you will agree, Patrick, is well-intentioned on the behalf of, of the security folks because they want to do the right thing. They want to make sure that we're safe. Nobody's going to be on this show, as, as long as I'm on this show, and tell me that they're not in favor of better security. Of course we are. But no, absolutely. And I'm not suggesting we be reckless or cavalier about this. It's just we have to also be rational about it. And no matter what measures we put in place, there's always going to be a way around them if somebody's resourceful and, and smart and malicious enough. Um, and to repeat another thing I've said on this show before, the real nuts and bolts of airport security, of keeping terrorists and criminals away from planes, isn't something that happens on the concourse. It's it's something that happens backstage, so to speak. It's the job of CIA and FBI and, and TSA, you know, doing things that you can't see, not the things that you see in front of you on the on the X-ray belt. Right. And I go back to I, I've said this before, I'll probably continue to say it. You go back to nineteen eighty eight, even before Pan Am one hundred three, uh, and when you were checking in on a flight, uh, and you got to the gate before they let you in to put, you know to to process your boarding pass and let you board the plane they would always always ask you the same stupid three questions that could only be answered by yes or no and even if english wasn't even your fifth language you could train anybody to answer them and nobody'd even bother to go beyond that and those three questions are and by the way remember it's yes yes or no right did you pack your bags yourself had they been with you at all times and did anybody give you anything so you just tell somebody okay it's yes yes or no you get to pass. They're not asking questions that can't be answered by yes or no that would give them an indication as to really who you are and what your motives might be. For the last 20 years, I think we would all celebrate the idea that we really haven't had a fatal terrorism attack in the air in the United States. Well, the, the cynic in me wants to say we could argue whether that's in spite of or because of the security measures we have in place. And, you know, I don't want to suggest that we're not doing good security. It's just not necessarily... As I said a minute ago, the stuff that we see there on the concourse, it, it, it's going on backstage. It's its more about intelligence than it's about confiscating hardware from people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, my, my joke in the old days was TSA stood for taking scissors away, and I get it. No, I do get it. But you know what? There's some intelligence that can work. For example, I remember back in the 90s, way before 9-11, if you were flying in Germany and you had a laptop they wouldn't just ask you to take it out and turn it on. At the end of the conveyor belt, they had an electronic scale. And they had the manufacturer's specs of every laptop ever made in terms of how much it looked, I mean, what, what, its, what its dimensions were, what it weighed. And they would put your laptop on the scale. And if it was off by, you know, an ounce, you had some explaining to do. I think, that, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would have to agree. And, uh, you know, things like that are sensible and rational. And ultimately, bombs and explosives are the main threat to commercial planes, just as they've always been. It, just to give you an example of the kind of lunacy that, that drives me crazy, I was at the airport in Mexico City not long ago, and, and they're holding up the security line for several minutes with dozens of people in line behind us to, to confiscate pieces of silverware from crew members. Uh, you know, the, the, take a fork from your luggage. Uh, you know, do they realize there are 300 other forks on the airplane? Um, that's the mindset. That's the kind of theater that, the, that irks me because it just it wastes so much time and it distracts and, and, and prevents, you know, from pre prevents people from performing more what would be more effective and useful security instead of just complete nonsense. Well, we're now living in the age of biometrics and, and uh, an AI, 
and I and, and and big data. I'm assuming that the technology does exist to improve on airport and airline security without slowing down the line. I think the the technology, the strategies, the answers, if you will, are out there. It's getting them implemented and and dealing with that on a bureaucratic level that that kind of keeps us mired where we are. I mean, it's been 20 years. It, it took 11 years just to put a system in place that allowed pilots to not have to go through the x-ray machine. I mean, that's that's how glacially slow these things progress. Well, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of the big C word, and that's the word called conversation. And I believe that you learn a lot when you actually have a conversation with people and you're not just asking them a series of robotic questions that can only be answered by yes or no. So, for example... You know, if, I, if I'm a homicide detective and I think Patrick Smith killed somebody, the very first question I'm not going to ask you is, did you kill him? Because uh, I'm only going to get a yes or no answer. Are you asking? Most like- he, was, he was on the floor when I walked in. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I, I would never, I, most likely I'm going to get a no and I have nowhere to go when, that, when I get that answer. Instead, I would establish a little bit more of a, of a common ground relationship with you. And at some point then in that conversation, I'd say, so Patrick, what'd you do with the gun? It can't be answered by yes or no. And if you answer that question and you talk about the gun, maybe then we have something to talk about. But just asking people a series of questions that can only be answered by yes or no, in my book, accomplishes zero. No, I agree. And this, this gets back to what we were saying a minute ago about how ultimately this is this is about intelligence gathering and, and screening person to person in the right way rather than it is just taking things out of people's luggage and the, you know the slippery slope here is we get into quote unquote profiling um, you know but what does that mean it, it's not about racial profiling or ethnic profiling or what passport you have it, it's it's using a whole big long series of data points and and using that to figure out who might be a threat uh you know if you talk to the israelis they're they're very good at that and we often hear well why can't we just do what the israelis do at you know tel aviv and well we, we you can't just scale that up we live in a country with hundreds of commercial airports whereas they basically have one it's very easy for them to have very good security. It's not easy for us, but it is possible if we just would allocate the right resources and use the right strategies. My thanks to Patrick. It's now one of the largest federal agencies in the U.S. 64,000 employees manning 440 American airports, created in the wake of 9-11. That's the TSA. And Administrator David Pukoski has an update. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Here's my question, sir. Where were you on 9-11? On uh, 9-11, I was in Washington, D.C. I was a Coast Guard officer. I was working directly for the 
coming out of the Coast Guard. So I was right here in, in, in town and I lived in Northern Virginia. So on my way home very early in the morning, September 12th, you know, I went right by the Pentagon. You know, I had, had um, uh, you know, direct impact uh, with, with 9-11 as so many people in the country did. And what I think about all the time, we'll think about even more so on Saturday, are all the people that we lost and the impacts uh, on those families on 9-11. Exactly. And that still reverberates today. I lost friends there that day in the towers, both people who worked there and also firefighters, you know, and, and there's a, a, a fabulous book that came out that called The Only Plane in the Sky, which is an oral history of 9-11. And the stories told in that book about the decisions people made just nonchalantly that day, never thinking that it would turn their lives around or end their lives. So your agency was actually established as a direct result of 9-11 and it grew very rapidly. It was sort of a learn-while-you-earn process, simply because you never had to, f- to ramp up that kind of security that, that fast. And of course, against enemies that were adept at basically accelerated technology almost as fast as you could to stop them. So what lessons do you think the agency has learned over the last 20 years? And then, and then of course, what lessons have they applied? Because the good news is, and I've said this throughout the show, we've now spent 20 years without a single fatal terrorist attack on U.S. soil in an airplane. And I'm not, I, I don't necessarily think we should celebrate that, but we have to acknowledge it. And at the same time, the question then becomes, how do we maintain that? Sure. And, and uh, you know, you highlighted a very important point is, you know, TSA was established actually on the 19th of November of 2001. So just a couple of months after 9-11, Congress passed the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. President Bush signed it into law and that got TSA up and running and tremendous effort, as you noted, to get 440 airports around the country, as we term it, federalized, which meant that you know federal screeners were now present in those airports to conduct screening operations. And, and to your question on what have we learned, I mean, one of the things that we have learned and we apply to this day is the threat is always changing. And we can't provide adequate security in the future by just looking at the past in terms of the threat picture. And so you know, now, for example, we're looking at a threat that also includes domestic terrorists. If you, if you listen closely to what the FBI director is saying, that is the number one uh, terror threat now facing the United States. And so that causes us to also look forward. We feel the same way. We agree 100% with him and try to adapt our processes. The other thing that we have learned is that uh, having very close partnerships with the carriers, the airlines, and the airports, and the cargo facilities Everybody that's in the aviation ecosystem is critically important because when you have those close partnerships, you're able to be very agile in how you react. You know, there's trust built between the government agency and the organizations that are regulated for aviation security. And we're able to really react very quickly to any change in a threat posture and put it in place to the great benefit of the traveling public and also to the economy because a lot of cargo goes by air. And, you know, the the, the aviation sector is a significant part of the American economy. You know, it's interesting. Every year, for many years, I haven't done it recently, but every every year for many years, I would work with the TSA and they'd show me all the items that you'd confiscate from passengers. Some of them were so ludicrous. Chainsaws. Who checks in a plane with a chainsaw? And then the ones that were not so ludicrous and could have easily gotten by me, you know, weapons disguised in canes or, 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 you know, baby formula or all that other stuff that you guys are always looking at in your labs without being, you know, revealing any proprietary information, I'm sure that you're discovering all that new stuff all the time. We are. And just to give you uh, kind of an update on what we are discovering, 
So this calendar year, so calendar year 2021 to date, so we're, we've got several months still to run in 2021, we have discovered over 4,000 live weapons in our checkpoint screening operations. So these are weapons that are fully usable, uh, oftentimes about 80 plus percent also have, are loaded. Um, so you got to figure that 4,000 weapons that we detect that were prevented from getting on aircraft. But then there are other firearms like stun guns and replicas and components of firearms, uh, over 3,000 of those items. And then you look at, uh, you know, there's a number of things that we prohibit on aircraft that aren't firearms, like knives, like throwing stars, um, uh, like fireworks and things like that. We've prevented over 3,000 of those items from getting on board aircraft. So, so it's significant. And this is just in the checkpoints in your carry-on bags. Same applies to check baggage. And this is part of a TSA operation that the public oftentimes doesn't see, is that all of the check baggage that goes on board aircraft uh, is searched uh, or scanned before it gets on board the aircraft. And you know there are a lot of things that we discover in, in check baggage that shouldn't be uh, on board an aircraft as well. And that, and that work continues to this day. The only question that you have, I know it's a challenge for you guys, is staffing. You were down to about 6,000 agents at the beginning of the year. Have you caught up yet? Yeah, we, we are uh, actually on track with staffing. And um, uh, you know, we've done a pretty good job of, of uh, being able to recruit uh, people into the agency. Um, the one thing that, that I would emphasize to, to all of your listeners is, you know, the TSA workforce, uh, largely what the public sees are the transportation security officers, the uniformed officers uh, in checkpoints around the country. And I, I would just like to take the opportunity to really recognize and praise those officers because they have very hard jobs to do. I mean, they've got to make sure that none of those weapons I described, none of those prohibited items uh, get on board an aircraft. Um, they're standing uh, all day long to do their shifts. And in most airports, I mean, they're showing up at three o'clock or so in the morning to be ready to open the airport checkpoints uh, when the first flights take off. And so this has been a tremendous uh, effort by you know, roughly 45,000 of our 60,000 people are uh, in the screening workforce doing that um, screening each and every day. And just to kind of give a, a sense of, of numbers, you know, already to, to date in this calendar year, we have screened about almost 375 million people. Um, and so when you consider the volume of passengers that go through this very large domestic system that we have, and this year is a little bit le- you know, lower than what we would expect to be if we weren't still in a pandemic. You know, we're, we're right now running between 10 and 15% lower than our benchmark year, which we use now as 2019, which is the first, you know, the last full year um, before the pandemic. So just a, just a real acknowledgement of the great work that's been done by our transportation security officers. And then part of what the public doesn't see on purpose um, are our federal air marshals, which are providing in-flight security. When we determine that you know, a, a particular flight might have a, a, a more of a risk profile than other flights, we put federal air marshal teams uh, on board those, those aircraft. And so the Federal Air Marshal Service has been uh, serving continuously since TSA's establishment. Most of them came from the FAA uh, when we were established. My thanks to David Pekoski. And finally, it was the most unlikely of scenarios. The small town of Gander in Newfoundland, Canada, doesn't have a lot of air traffic. On a normal day, its airport might have three scheduled flights, but not on September 11, 2001. On that day, airplanes were ordered to land immediately, and suddenly more than 30 wide-bodied planes heading to the U.S. from Europe landed in Gander. Claude Elliott, the former mayor of Gander, was suddenly confronted with a major crisis, and the people of Gander responded. It's truly an incredible story. When I ask everybody where they were on September 11th, 
my next guest knows exactly where he was because his location was a sort of unexpected recipient of the fallout from 9-11. The former mayor of Gander, Newfoundland, Claude Elliott. Welcome back, sir. Pleasure to be here, Peter. You know, um, I have to admit that I've gone to see the play come from away three times. Every time I've seen the play, at the end of the play, I'm standing on my chair applauding and, and screaming with the rest of the audience because it really celebrated uh, the character, the nature, the humanity of a small community that just about everybody who landed there that day may have flown over in the past, but never in a million years expected to go there, let alone land there under those circumstances. So let me set the scene and then let's you and I tell that story. Uh, on 9-11, as on any other day, on a normal day over the North Atlantic, there are dozens of, of wide-body planes crossing over from Europe to the United States. And on that day, was no different, except for one thing, the World Trade Center and 9-11. And when that happened, and the order came, and the order came down to put every plane on the ground as fast as possible uh, and as close to the, you know, to where they were as possible. Here comes Gander in Newfoundland. Um, what was the population of Gander, Mayor? At that time, it was 9,300. 9,300. How many hotel rooms did you have in Gander then? 500. And how many people suddenly showed up on the runway? Almost 7,000. <laughs> with 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 nowhere to go and they weren't going to be going for quite some time uh, for anybody who hasn't seen this picture i'm sure you can google it the number of wide body planes 747s dc10s uh lined up nose to nose tail to tail wing to wing at an airport that may have seen one of those planes in two or three weeks they all showed up in one 45 minutes to one hour span. And if I remember correctly, Mayor, uh, things were not always going to be working well in Gander at that time. You had a bus strike. Uh, The bus drivers were out on strike. Um, And all of a sudden, how many, 7,000 plus people showed up at the airport with nowhere to go. And what happened? Well, uh, I guess the first thing we did, you know, like you said, the only bus service we have here is from the, uh, the Central Nova School Board. And other than that, we don't have any bus service. And in order to move the passengers from the airport to the locations where they were staying, the only way to do it was at the bus system. And the bus drivers were on strike. But we met with the union. We met with the, with the bus drivers. And they immediately said, yes, we will help. And they laid down their picket signs and they volunteered their time for the next five days. As uh, some of the bus drivers said, look, our beef is with the our employer, not with those people that's here. So we would be gladly uh, volunteer for the next five days, driving them around. Well, you had to drive around, but you also had to drive them somewhere. Where did you put all those people? Well, we used every church. We used every organization, every school we had in town. And then we had help from other communities like Glenwood, Hapleton, uh, Norris's Arm, Gamble, and Lewisport. And those communities are within a 40-minute drive of Gander. So they all volunteered to take some passengers to Elkis here in Gander. And, of course, we're talking about 38 plane loads of people. 
Yes. Wow. And they were on the ground for how long? Well, they were there for quite a while because first when we got the word that the planes were landing, it was only supposed to be for a few hours until the U.S. could figure out what was happening with this terrorist attack, how wide it was, and they were only going to be here for a few hours and then be on their merry way again. But as the day wore on, we realized that that wasn't going to happen, so we started getting prepared. And the last people to come off the planes were sitting on the tarmac for 28 hours. Whew. And then, of course, once they got off the plane, they had to they had to sleep, they had to be fed, they had to shower. Where did that happen? Well, every almost every place we had that you know they had the uh, kitchen facilities we could cook. We had all the food at the community center on the on the on the ice surface uh, in the rink there and to keep it cool and the Salvation Army they did their distribution of taking it from place to place and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who came in to cook and brought food and clothing and everything to make sure that the people were as comfortable as they possibly could. So your freezer was really the ice rink? The That's hockey right. Rink. We had the largest walking refrigerator in Newfoundland at the time. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. The thing that, that fascinated me the most was, of course, how it became literally overnight a community. Yes, it did. I mean, we almost doubled. And, you know, I mean, we had 9,300 and we had almost uh, 6,000 people. And, you know, but, uh, you know, the greatest asset any community has is is people. And here in Gander and the surrounding communities, uh, we have no trouble getting our people to help in a a time of crisis, regardless if if it's your friends up the street or complete strangers from around the world, they will come out and help. And those people, uh, you know, they needed help. Uh, They probably probably needed, I think they probably needed reassurance and love as much as they needed food when they heard what was happening in the U.S. So that's just the way we are. We do it for anyone. We do it again tomorrow if if the need was there. And of course, it was such a time of confusion and chaos. Uh, You know, who do you turn for help? Uh, Your communication lines are essentially down. You know you're not going to go anywhere. You're probably separated in many cases from your family and your loved ones. And you guys embraced all of them. We took everybody in and, you know, we, we made sure that there was extra telephones placed in every every place that people were staying. We also made sure that there was extra TV so people could see what was happening. And, and Bell Lyant, the local telephone company in the province, they set up something like Haiti telephones outside of their office here in Gander and just let people call home free of charge. So that way that they could be, you know, once they got all to their loved ones and seen that everybody was safe and some wasn't, but most of them were safe, you know, they, they felt a bit more relaxed. And then of course, uh, it was the relationships that were built quite unusually and quite without design. I mean, you know, someone from a KLM plane falls in love with somebody from a British Airways flight. So, I mean, the relationships that came out of that are staggering. Well, there's no question. I mean, like you said, there was one couple and they end up uh, getting married. Uh, You know, they met there and they came back to Gamble where they were staying and Gander for their honeymoon. Uh, you know, and there was also personal relationships with people staying in people's homes. We've had people from Gander visit people in the U.S. We've had people in the U.S. visit the people here in Gander that they have stayed with and in Lewisport and everywhere where people take taken. So it was like uh, it was like we had extra family members. And, uh, you, you know, it was just uh, it was so heartwarming to see 
in a terrible time in our in our history that we could see such love and compassion between complete strangers. And of course, without choice, they had to immerse themselves in the in the culture of Newfoundland. Yeah, and that, and, and sometimes it's not an easy culture to come in, <laughs> but uh, but they managed to get it in. We we you know we we taught them. Uh, a lot about our province. We thought a lot about our country because some people had never heard of Canada. Remember, we had people from 95 countries. So it was, there was people never heard of Canada. But uh, all of a sudden, they became uh, very addicted to the Newfoundland culture. And uh, a lot of them uh, still come back for that, that, those culture things now. And what about kissing the fish? <laughs> well, some people reluctantly, but they do it. Ex- ex- Mayor, explain that, please. Well, we have a, a tradition in Newfoundland, Scott, you get screeched in. And, and screech is a Newfoundland rum. And you have to go through a ceremony and you have to eat a few uh, Newfoundland's famous food. Uh, and then you have to kiss a cod, a codfish. So after you kiss the codfish, you get the opportunity to drink the screech, to take the taste of the codfish away from you. Then you become a honorary Newfoundlander and you're given a card and a certificate to say you're an honorary Newfoundlander. So anytime you come to Newfoundland, you can show that card and uh, you're part of us. Mr. Mayor, I've been through Gander a number of times way before 9-11, but never by design. I was either there because we lost an engine on a plane and had to make an emergency landing or we had we were running into headwinds on the way back to the United States, didn't have enough fuel, we landed in Gander. And, of course, if you landed in Gander at the airport, you had to eat the lobster. That's right. You, you had to eat the lobster. And, and, and you, have, you have a relatively big airport there because it was such a big airport, a staging area in World War II. Uh, it was, it, you still have so many military flights, but not that many commercial flights. Back in 2001, on average, how many flights a day came in and out of Gander that were scheduled? Well, mostly that came in and out of Gander was that was Canadian carriers like WestJet, Air Canada, you know, Canadian military. But we also get a lot of U.S. military coming through. But the wide bodies now, they're so efficient, they don't have to stop and refuel. So most of the time when we see it at, at a wide body landing, it was for emergency, a medical emergency, weather, or some kind of a problem with the plane and that. So, uh, you know, you wouldn't see a lot of wide bodies, even in back in 2001, you would mostly see just the local traffic. So this represented, whether you liked it or not, the largest wide body landing in any one time of just about any port, any airport in the world. Well, I would say, yes, it was, uh, you know, I mean, to get 38 wide bodies, you know, within an hour, you know, but our, our infrastructure is so big that we could have parked 200 planes there, no, no problem. And, uh, and even since 9-11, we still don't see a lot of wide bodies. Occasionally, uh, you, you might see uh, some of the larger cargo planes that can't make it all the way across that. But for most part, it's just local traffic. So as you think back 20 years, and it's hard to even think that we can think back 20 years, but it happened 20 years ago. When you reflect on that time, 
What lessons did you learn from that? What thoughts come to mind as you begin to try to remember what happened and also remember what we need to do to move forward? Well, I think some of the lessons that we learned from it is no matter what kind of a disaster plan that you have in place, because we're a hairport town and mostly disaster plan is, is related to here in, in case of a, you know, a crash and that. Uh, but there was nothing in the plane to say, plan to say, what are you going to do with, uh, you know, 7,000 people decide to drop in for four or five days? And I think, too, that it was it, you had to make decisions very quickly. You never had time to take out a book and see what you had to do because there was nothing in the book to tell you what to do in, in, in that case. And I think that the lessons we learned from it is, hey, you know, sometimes you might not need a book. You just need people and uh, and people can act, you know, spontaneously and, and come and offer their services. And that's all you need. And, uh, you know, and, and when it was all over, uh, I guess the one thing that we learned from it is, look, uh, we probably live in one of the best places in the world, and we should never take it for granted, you know? And of course, ironically, for the five days that those 7,000 people were there, the weather was absolutely beautiful. Well, yeah, I said that someone must have brought their weather with them because we don't usually get four or five days in a row in September as beautiful and as warm as what it was those five days, but uh, someone brought it with them. And I know how many times I've seen the play come from away. How many times have you seen it? 85 times. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. You've seen it 85 times. Mm. Uh, you may hold the record for that. No, I would venture to say that that record is held by Beverly Bass. Uh, and Beverly is? Is the, the uh, American Airlines captain. Oh, who was also grounded that day. That's Yes, right. she was. And I think that she is well over 100 times. And the audience reaction, I have to tell you, is always the same cheering and clapping at the end because what we saw in Gander that day and I saw it when I came up to see you 10 years ago when we did a piece for CBS Right. we're not talking about random acts of kindness, we're talking about spontaneous mass acts of kindness yes. and, and uh, you know in a, in, a, in a society where we're desperately searching for that wonderful feeling of community those 7,000 people that day uh, I certainly didn't plan for it but they landed in one that's right. You know, it was it was our pleasure, you know, to to help out during a crisis. But, you know, as as we look at now the 20th anniversary, Peter, that's coming, uh, you know, as all the good things that happened here in Gander, uh, our thoughts and prayers are still with the families that lost loved ones through that difficult time. I know. And uh, now I know you had a 10th reunion, um, a 20th, too. Well, it, it's it's a bit different here with COVID and everything. We're not sure. Uh, you know, you can't have a large gathering. Uh, you know, there's things planned. How they will turn out, I, we don't know. Uh, you know, but it won't be the way that we had planned it to be. I can say that for sure. Well, you know what that means? Gander is consistent because nothing that happened 20 years ago happened because you planned it to be. That's right. And then, so same thing again now. We'll, we'll hack on impulse to see what happens on the 20th, 20th anniversary. And how's the ice rink doing? <laughs> it's still there. And uh, we still, hopefully that we don't have to use it anymore for what we use it for. But if it do, we're ready to go. People and the ice rink is ready to go. Mayor Claude Elliott, a pleasure to talk to you again and to see you again. I really appreciate it, and uh, let's hope that we never have to have that happen again. But at the same time, Gander is a great place to visit. I speak from experience. My thanks to Claude, to David Pekoski, 
to Patrick Smith and to Garrett Graff. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel and the answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and there's more of it every day, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.